0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet.
1: I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias.
0: Thanks to those of you who gave over the course of the campaign, we reached our goal and we feel humbled
1: by the support of our listeners. And here's what this money is going to help us accomplish in the next year, in case you've forgotten already. New podcast, Faith for Normal People, launching in 2023. Continued accessibility for our courses and classes that pay what you can option A brand new website and community platform, which is a holdover from last year. More content from our nerds and residents. More Bible for Normal People books, including Romans for Normal People, which is coming out later this year. Yeah. I think that's it.
0: Yeah. So, folks, a sincere thank you from the bottom of
1: our hearts. Well, welcome everyone to the podcast today. We are talking about acknowledging racism in the church with Jamar Tisby. Yeah, we've wanted to have Jamar on
0: for a long time. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About Churches' Complicity in Racism, and he's the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. He speaks all over the place on topics of racial justice, U.S. history and Christianity. He has a Ph.D. in history, and he works in the areas of race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century quite an accomplished guy yeah all right well let's get just right into
1: this conversation
2: it's due to the way a system is constructed to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others and that's the fundamental disconnect i see with many white christians in their understanding of racism
1: well welcome jamara to the podcast it's great to have you
2: I have been looking forward to this for so long. Thank you for having me how as a guest. I'm long, excited. How long, Jamar? Exactly. You don't have to answer I, no, no, I want to know. It's
1: important
0: to me.
2: At least 11 months and 13 days or so. That's good.
1: Oh, wow. 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 Okay.
0: <laughs> You're awesome.
1: So, we wanted to start with just hearing a little bit of your context and your story and how it intersects with the work that you do now.
0: I'll
2: start with the present. I am in the wilderness of sort of... Churches and denominations right now. That is to say, uh, I don't have or claim a permanent ecclesiastical home like many people right now because of a lot of different things. So, most recently, I was at a predominantly white evangelical church that had some racial and ethnic diversity, but we underwent what, in retrospect, I would call a church split at the beginning of 2021. That was precipitated in part because of the pandemic. There were elements within the church who uh, insisted that they should not be forced to wear a mask when and if we gathered together again in person for worship. It was also brought about by political divisions such that uh, there were elements within the church who thought that I was serving as the, the interim pastor at that time. That's probably important to know. And so, they thought that when I preached really about justice, sometimes it would intersect with politics per se, but uh, they thought that I was throwing them in particular, uh, this person thought I was throwing them under the bus because they, they were outspoken Trump supporter. And what I tried to do the Sunday before the 2020 election, I didn't preach on politics straightforward, I preached about truth. And I said, however you vote, whatever you support, at the bare minimum, <laughs> as as people who follow a Savior who speaks so often of truth and scripture that speaks so often of truth, we should be dedicated to facts and then let the facts lead you where your convictions uh, will take you. But it was sermons like those, in addition to the urgency of talking about racial justice in our churches, particularly due to the 2020 racial justice uprisings. All of that together basically brought to the surface divisions that had long been there, which uh, were around far-right white Christian nationalist beliefs and the rest of us. Uh, So, the white Christian nationalist element left, they had the largest families, they had uh, the most money, and uh, soon – our church decided to dissolve the congregation and and find other means of congregating and worshiping all of that was it sort of encapsulates my <laughs> spiritual journey in many ways because as a black man i became a christian in white evangelical circles not all white evangelicals are christian nationalists but sociologists tell us 70 to 80% would identify somewhere in terms of supporting those beliefs and stances. I learned that the long and hard way over the course of decades, um, being associated with uh, evangelical churches, Reformed churches, Reformed Theological Seminary where I got my Master's in Divinity, and then um, starting The Witness, a Black Christian Collective where I wrote and, and spoke publicly about matters of race and faith. Uh, along the way, got my PhD in History at the University of Mississippi, which showed me in a whole new way what this nation has been capable of, uh, sadly, when it comes to racism and white supremacy and, and oftentimes how the church, uh, historically white churches in particular, were complicit and compromised with racism instead of confronting it. But throughout all of that, I found great support in the universal church, the body of believers who may be beyond your local congregation but who uh, confess uh, the same faith. And so I'm very thankful that I've met folks along the way who don't see a contradiction between Jesus and justice and here we are.
1: Mm. Maybe to jump right into it, I from from a historical perspective, why are white churches in America so hesitant to acknowledge systemic racism and because I think some of the the tension comes when there's a uh, request to acknowledge the racism that's present and that is it sort of like we're not willing to do that. what What
2: accounts for that? Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, in their classic book, Divided by Faith, talk about the uh, cultural toolkit of white evangelicals. And what makes up that cultural toolkit is a, a strong leaning toward individualism. Now, that's a Western thing in general. If we look at the global church, it's very different. But even among, Westerners, white evangelicals tend to be even more individualistic than others. That affects how they view both theology and what they believe about God, as well as social issues uh, such as racism. So, you know, you'll hear hear phrases like just me and my Bible. Uh, There's this very sort of kind of anti-authoritarian bent in uh, Protestantism where, you know, no, no one can tell me what the Bible means, I can interpret it for myself. And there's something to that in terms of the priesthood of all believers and the Holy Spirit indwelling everyone. Uh, But it also sort of speaks to how very difficult it is to have some sort of common understandings, communal understandings about certain issues, especially divisive ones uh, like racism. So, the interpretation that I've seen from many evangelicals is really fundamentally a, an anemic understanding of what racism is. Uh, for many people, racism is is fundamentally a, an interpersonal issue. It's one person not liking another. It's, it's individual prejudice. It's using the N-word. It's refusing to serve people at your business establishment, whatever it might be. And those are somewhat overt, of course. And so, if that's the problem, then what's the solution? Well, I'm nice to black people, or I don't use those kinds of words, or I don't see color, because that is my personal attitude and beliefs, and then racism's not a problem. While that ignores all of the ways that racism manifests itself systemically and institutionally, uh, as we record this, we just got word that the, the warrant that was used as the basis For police officers in Louisville, Kentucky to conduct a no-knock raid that resulted in Breonna Taylor's death in 2020. Two officers conspired to falsify information, to lie to the judge, to get that warrant. And so, that warrant itself was illegitimate, and it resulted in the murder of this young woman. And this kind of thing is repeated over and over and over again in all kinds of law enforcement offices in all kinds of criminal legal proceedings and it's not due to any one individual hiding behind a curtain and pulling levers it's due to the way a system is constructed to give advantages to some and disadvantages to others and that's the fundamental disconnect i see with many white christians in their understanding of racism
0: you know i've uh, i've been in situations where even I'm afraid to mention systemic or institutional racism because I know I'm going to get beat up and um, not physically, but, you know, so I'm, I'm wondering where, you know, the, the the willingness to recognize racism on an individual level. And, you know, most people that I know will say, I'm not racist. I don't want to be racist. And if I am, I want people to tell me and all this sort of stuff. But some of the same people have a lot of energy. when you talk about systemic racism, as if they take that very personally. Yeah, And do you have any insights on that? I've noticed that too. I'm
2: like, why are y'all so mad about this? I mean, there are few things that get folks up in arms than talking about racism in general, but particularly the ways that we still need to confront racism systemically and institutionally. It is really bracing. The response uh, I'll get you you mentioned um, proverbially getting beat up I experienced that exact same thing the day after the 2016 election when Trump was elected I I, I, I hopped on a mic like we are' we're doing now and our producer for our past the mic podcast interviewed me about my initial reactions and one of the li- the, the line that I said that got me um, proverbially beat up, was another proverbial statement. I said that going to my predominantly – I felt unsafe going to my predominantly white evangelical church that Sunday. Again, not physically, but it felt like such a betrayal uh, that I could be this black Christian in their midst, my black family in their midst, and and be so misunderstood and have our concerns so overlooked. I mean, you know, there were some who were who, in our congregation just celebrating. Uh, they were thankful. <laughs> you know, that that, that Christianity was on the ascendancy again in the White House kind of a thing. And so, I said that, and for the next three weeks, it was a relentless pounding online by trolls and bad faith interlocutors. And that's just one example of, of why it raises the ire. Why does it raise such ire? I think it's about identity. I really do. I think when you start to critique these things, people know on some level that if it's right, they're going to have to rethink and review almost everything they know about God as well as the way they maneuver in the world. And because it has to do with race and whiteness, they take it personally as if to say they can't separate white people from the ideology and the construct of whiteness, if that makes any sense. So, you know, the amount of melanin in one's skin, we know, has no bearing on who you are uh, or being made in the image of God or what your proclivities or prejudices are right that's it's it's a it's a chemical in your skin and that's it
0: people who are quick to let's say repent of personal racism that's sort of baked into the christian and certainly the protestant when we're talking about the american Christian political scene, it is largely Protestant that we're dealing with here in the U.S., sure. but um, that's sort of a normal thing. You repent of your sins and you're sorry and you try not to do it again. But I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that systemic racism, once you start looking into that, things get rather messy and deep and uh, uh, people are afraid of, maybe I can put it this way, afraid of their narratives having to be rewritten. Oh, yes. How they look yes, at yes, themselves, yes, yes. how they look at the world, their place in the world. I mean, nobody likes doing that. Exactly. Right, nobody exactly. likes doing that. But that's, I guess that's the point. That That's really what's at stake. Once you start looking at our institutions and just how we function as a society, and if you start seeing that, it's like, it's all a lie, you know?
2: <laughs> and that, yeah, that freaks yeah. people out. I'm so glad you used that word narrative, because that's precisely right. Uh, race is a story we tell ourselves. It's a story we tell ourselves about hierarchy about value about whose voices and perspectives count and all of the, the sort of uh, efforts at at racial justice now and historically they're presenting a counter narrative that if true would knock the pillars out from under such ideas as the United States is specially favored by god you know that's why we have so much wealth and the military is the strongest in the world and that's a that's a divine gift, right? It would dispel such myths that uh, the founding fathers were unassailably noble in their intent, and that, yeah, the slavery thing was there, but, you know, the better angels in this nation prevailed, and that's why races, uh, slavery was abolished. No mention of civil war, which to this day is the nation's bloodiest war, and uh, how reluctant <laughs> slaveholders were to, re- to relinquish that. So, I think all of that goes into identity, goes into narrative, and the reality is one of the most pernicious effects of uh, segregation is is creating these homogenous information bubbles such that so many people have never heard a different story, or to the extent that they have, they've, those stories have always been dismissed and demonized. So then it becomes very, very hard when you're dealing with people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond to present this counter-narrative as something that they should consider when they've been told all their lives, when either they've never really heard it, or they've been told all their lives such narratives are evil.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's Just For Drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, I want to maybe talk about some of these reasons why white evangelicals again I, I'm kind of assuming the white evangelicals have a what they think are good biblical or religious reasons for being critical of systemic racism or critical race theory or these kinds of things. Maybe can do you know like can you expound on what would a what would a white evangelical say is the reasons why they're pushing back on these things? Like you said, it's it, it, sometimes it's hard to wrap my mind around why there's such anger toward just the notion that there has been and continues to be uh, systemic racism in our country but then there's this seems to be this other side of it which is like no it's like my it's like biblical to be against these kinds of things
2: <laughs> right 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 which is which is so interesting because the bible speaks a speaks so often to entire groups of people right god in the old testament speaking to the nation of Israel, speaking to whole uh, families and and tribes, in addition to everything the Bible says, particularly around unjust scales, I think is really interesting as we think about our criminal legal system, as we think about um, elected officials and the way that they can um, help determine justice or injustice. So, in spite of all that, many white Christians home in on passages that focus on individual conversion, and so that's how – you know Matthew 28, go and make disciples, becomes this manifesto of evangelism. And, and the way they interpret it is, is helping people to make individual professions of faith, which is certainly part of the Christian tradition, but it, it's not what is there, it's what's not there, which is any sort of attention to the social dimensions of the gospel, one might say. And it's really hard to explain just with the text. It comes down to cherry-picking particular verses that they will expound, you know, and and extrapolate on and use as normative for for the entire Bible to the neglect of of other verses. But it's a real problem of understanding and what it comes from. So, there's so much talk about white Christians and white Christianity, and I sort of frame the conversation in that way in terms of my church experience, but we have so much more to learn from historically marginalized and oppressed people who are Christians and the way they understand the Bible and God. And so, I constantly, in my work as a historian and as just an embodied Black Christian, point to the Black Christian tradition as a way of an alternate way of understanding the faith that might be helpful in these times, particularly around issues like systemic racism. We've never been an issue because there were s- legitimately whole systems from race based child slavery to Jim Crow segregation to ongoing forms of racialization that were systematized in order to uh, disenfranchise us and keep us out of certain advantages in this society. So it's not been hard for black Christians to understand that concept. Maybe we should learn. From others,
1: yeah, and what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that there's a filter as white Christians that yeah. I, I know at least growing up in evangelical tradition, I had a certain filter by which I couldn't see, I didn't even know I had a filter, but every time I looked at the text, I was looking for things that confirmed my ideology, that this book is about my personal salvation and my personal relationship with Jesus. And so, it's no surprise that I found that in the text. And by listening to other people groups, especially marginalized or oppressed people groups, that they can show us that filter that if without other diverse voices we may never see because it's almost like the water we're swimming in
2: it's wild you know maybe maybe there's something to that imagery that the bible frequently uses of the church being a body and how each part needs each other and how no part is more important than the other and and we all need to work together to function to me that we have to read the bible in community like that should be basic that's why even in evangelical churches, you have a small group, you have a Bible study group. Why? Because it's not even in that tradition, which is highly individualistic, it's not even just one person in their Bible. There, There is some level of understanding that, it, that as we get together and unpack Scripture together and try to understand God together, that there's a new level of understanding. Now, can we, can we actually take that principle and extrapolate it to other races and ethnicities and cultures and all of these different beautiful people groups. This is random, but and I don't know if this flies, but this is how it struck me. I was I was endlessly scrolling through TikTok because they've got the algorithm down. They know how our brains work. They they've got us trapped on these things. So I was scrolling and 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 there's Amen. this one TikTok <laughs> they're winning they're winning um they won unfortunately yes yes so um there's this one account i'd never seen it before i don't even know the name of it but it's it's a woman of indian descent from from india and what she does is uh she'll take like hip-hop songs or pop songs from the united states and her or someone else will basically remix those songs into their native language. And at the same time you're hearing the music, she's also changing from, like, traditional, like, hoodie and sweatshirt kind of thing into uh, formal Indian dance apparel and doing a dance to this remix song. And what I saw with that, talking about the beauty of cultures, is like, that's a picture of eternity, how we can mix and match and blend and adapt and remix in beautiful ways different cultures and how that is actually baked in to God's creation as a good thing. And it absolutely baffles and frustrates me why we would resist that beauty, because what they came up with, this blending, this this mixing, this, this I'll take the strengths from your area and the strengths from my area, and we'll put them together in conversation and see what we come up with, that was beautiful. And that's what we're missing, even in simple biblical interpretation when we refuse to learn from people who come from other traditions and cultures and maybe have different views of the Bible than we do.
1: Well, it, it, it goes back to, it sounds like, to that sermon you gave on truth where, I, in my experience, people are afraid to acknowledge the validity of other interpretations because it then relativizes my interpretation. It's not
2: Watch out. the once Watch out. truth
1: for all time, absolute fact, which is really, the more I dig, is really an element of control.
2: Oh, now we're getting into it. So, this element of authoritarianism. So, it's very hard in many U.S. Christian traditions to have, quote, an authority, right? Uh, Some person who, who can absolutely tell you what the Bible means. You know, we look to, unfortunately, put many pastors on pedestals and things like that, Nate. But there's still this rebellious threat, I think, in U.S. Christianity that you can't tell me, what to believe or how to believe it kind of a thing. But but also there is this tendency toward authoritarianism. And one one sort of element of that I think is is this very rigid right wrong no gray area in between view of not only the Bible but I dare say how some folks look at the Constitution of the United States as, as an almost divinely ordained document that you can't mess with and would really rather do away with pretty much every amendment except the Second Amendment Uh well, Wasn't the there a recent
0: pastor, Jamar, who at some conference basically said that? I saw this on yes. TikTok, by the way, as I was yeah. scrolling. Yeah, there you During go. the scroll so I'm not the of only death, one. I came across this. <laughs> but the guy said that the Constitution was written by God. Now he wanted to qualify that and say something like, you know, it, it "God inspired people to write it," but that's not much better in my opinion. But yeah, that's right.
2: Well, that's out that's there. A, that's precisely right, and I think they're applying that same interpretive lens from how they view the Bible to how they view. And interpret the Constitution. These are the "quote unquote" originalists. Many of them, uh, and and you'll see parallels in in many Christian churches in the United States uh, in in terms of how they view the Bible and the Constitution. So I think you're right on. And and you speak to another factor, which is folks are trying to embrace that label of Christian nationalist. Notice they'll never say white Christian nationalist, but that's part of it. It's constitutive of it, and um, they're trying to sort of flip it. They're trying to do this kind of uh, judo thing and and use this momentum against it and make it into a good term. Uh, And it's not. It's irredeemable. It's not a good thing. It, It is loaded with baggage that is negative. And don't let them do that as much as they try to use that term in a positive way.
0: Yeah. One question here, and I think we touched on it briefly, but I'd I'd like you to maybe focus a little bit more on it. Uh, You mentioned elsewhere that the media is missing the religious dimension of the pushback on CRT. Mm -hmm. Explain Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Uh, What does that mean and why is that important?
2: So, I was front row seat to the emergence of critical race theory as what I call a junk drawer for anything any term or concept around race that makes uh, a certain kind of person feel uncomfortable. Uh, that is to say, critical race theory entered, I would say, the broader public consciousness as this boogeyman, uh, probably l- late 2020, somewhere around there. Uh, there was this guy, Chris Rufo, went on Fox News. Tucker Carlson asked him, what would you tell the president right now about critical race theory? And he said... I would tell the president to sign an executive order right now, today, banning critical race theory in any federal government training or literature or anything like that. Sure enough, a few weeks later, that executive order came down. Um, But that wasn't the first time people had brought that up. The religious elements of this are, number one, that you start seeing the inklings of this in the church. So, there's something called the Conservative Baptist Network right now which is within the SBC, it's a splinter group within the Southern Baptist Convention, which is already conservative by any account. These folks are saying the Southern Baptist Convention has lost its way. It's looking at folks like Russell Moore and and Beth Moore, who's no longer with the SBC, as as signs that that they are drifting away. And so, they have a a whole declaration that, that you can go to their website and you can sign on, but it's essentially decrying any sort of modern diversity, equity, inclusion kind of uh, language or approach to race. Then you have, um, I just call on the SBC because they're the biggest and and we tend to get their news. The SBC seminary presidents signed a statement, all six of them, saying critical race theory had no place in their Christian institutions, which upset and disappointed many people, especially uh, the black people in their midst. Ah, uh, you have other folks, like discernment bloggers, as they call them, whose whole mission <laughs> is to uh, find stuff they disagree with it and then write an article or or do a podcast about it and in order to get clicks so professional trolls, professional trolls a man, boy, they're effective.. <laughs> They've got big followings. They were talking about it. and and it has taken different forms. So it wasn't always critical race theory. There was, cultural Marxism at some point. There's always been the Marxist-Communist connection. There's been social justice warrior, liberal, capital L. All of those things are in the church. And the the way I I sort of use an analogy to the Civil War, you saw the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Methodists split before the Civil War, and they were sort of bellwethers of the political divide that was uh, present and widening. And so, look to the church if you want to see sort of the state of race relations today.
0: Yeah, um, you know, you, you mentioned um, those splits, so that reminds me of something else, that your your background, you have a background in the Reformed tradition, and- we all got a
2: testimony. <laughs> well, we do. You know, and
0: Jared and I, we do too. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the tradition for for a number of years, you know, I taught at a Reformed seminary for 14 years. So, you know, I sort of cut my teeth on Reformed theology. But your, your experiences led you to conclude that that tradition is not adequate to address social injustices.
2: At least the way they hold the tradition. So... The reform. There, there are different branches of, of even reformed theology, right? But but in general, you know, the systems of theology coming out of the Protestant um, Reformation in Europe, centuries, five hundred years ago. The strain I was in was Southern Presbyterian, which I didn't really know at the time I was getting into it. Uh, the way I got into it somebody in college gave me a book by John Piper called Desiring God. I had no idea. I never heard of Piper, never heard of reformed theology. I was just like, "Oh, there's a lot of scripture." Okay, here, well
0: actually. that's the end of this episode. Thanks so much for being here, Jamor. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding everybody. You know, Laugh a little bit. Go ahead, Jamor, keep going.
2: That's how I got into it and, you know, this is this is 20 years ago, so not everything that we know now did we know then, but it was high. It was very conservative, right? But in its original form, it's coming out of uh, Westminster in England. You know, so far removed from our contemporary racial scene, and to this day, if you look at the Westminster Catechism and their explication of the Ten Commandments, I think not only is it very rich material, it it, it also indicts people who adhere to reform theology but oppose racial justice efforts. It's, it's embedded in there if they understand their own tradition deeply enough, which is really interesting. But I did find the way folks practiced reform theology to be very lacking in, in all the ways that we're talking about, particularly around uh, racial justice. And beyond that, what happened was I started getting exposed more deeply to the Black Christian tradition, and so, again, I was in predominantly white Christian circles, and these were not the, the conversations I'm hearing. These were not the preachers that were platformed. These were not the books that were shared. So, I really got into that as a student in my doctoral program. And I'm reading secular history, but it's also leading me down these pathways of discovering, okay, who are the people that resisted racism? Who are the people who stood up for justice? Yeah, they were, many of them were black because they experienced so much injustice, but almost universally, almost, they, were, they had some connection to the church. So I said, there, there's more to this than I've been taught. And so that put me on a journey to really look into, you know, more deeply into, you know, Martin Luther King and the, the beloved community, really looking deeply into folks like Fannie Lou Hamer and what I call her Afro-Christian realism coming from the Mississippi Delta. And that has really reshaped my understanding of the faith.
1: So, speaking of that, you know, kind of these traditions and how it is affecting, you, you know, your faith and, and others, I, I, I want to get maybe practical for just a minute about there's this growing, there is, continues to be, I don't know if there's a growing, it just continues to be this divide amongst people. How how do we do that without just being vanilla, middle, middle of the road, third way kind of folks, how do we start to influence the people in our lives? You know, we just have, we have many people in our network and our community here at The Bible for Normal People who are wrestling with parents and, and siblings, like the relationships and how do we, you know, we keep trying to talk about this in a way that brings understanding of systemic racism, what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. How, you know, have you found a way that people can start having these conversations that doesn't just shut things down or polarize?
2: Look, new wineskins for new wine. We've got to theologize today. One of the things that we need is a richer, more robust theology of kindness. Why do I say that? Because I think that many Christians, myself included oftentimes, mistake kindness for niceness, and we think that in order to be nice to people, which every good Christian should be nice that we have to maintain relationships and have cups of coffee and be BFFs with everyone, even the people with whom we vehemently disagree. Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think that a deep understanding of Christian kindness requires socialization in our free time necessarily, however you want to term it. So, part of the issue, I think, as as we're thinking about taking action is to say – that there are people who, uh, as the Bible would say, are hard-hearted who don't want to listen to truth who are inoculated against any conversation around justice and mark chapter 6 says you know go to every village uh, preach the gospel if they won't receive you shake the dust off your sandals and move on in other words what i want people to know is if you are saying these things if you're trying to stand up for racial justice people aren't vibing with it your job your responsibility is to speak the truth as honestly as 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 tenderly as you can but ultimately it's up to them and think about this. This. While you're spending so much time with people who absolutely don't want to be persuaded, what work are you not doing? What is the work that is waiting for you if you return your attention and energy? Can you actually begin to do the work of justice and not just try to spend your energy convincing people that the work of justice needs to be done? So that's one thing. Another thing is, I have these t-shirts <laughs> because I want this message to be spread that says, justice takes sides. If you look at the historical record, especially at the people of faith who we now look up to and admire, they took a stand, and it was unpopular. King, at, his, at the end of his life, was, was one of the most reviled people in the nation, despite how people want to uh, misuse his teachings now. He took a stand, and so many others took a stand and said, right is right and wrong is wrong. And I think we have been conditioned to the both-sides-isms and the false equivalencies so much that we refuse to simply say, no, this is wrong, and it might put me at odds with people in my own community, but that's what I'm called to do as a follower of Jesus, who, by the way, did the same thing. So, those are a couple of things. The last thing I'll say is simply start. You know, it's like anything. Any habit that you want to form, whether it's eating better or exercising or uh, spending more time in the Bible, whatever it is, you just take a step and that leads to more and more and more. So don't sit back and try to figure out the whole plan. You're not going to know. You're going to take one step. You're gonna you're gonna turn, you're gonna take another step, you're gonna take a backward step, you're gonna go for it. that's how it is. You're not doing it wrong because you can't figure it all out from your, you know, armchair while you're reading a book. You're not supposed to. It's it's a lived theology, right? Uh and then the last thing, I said that was the last thing, but this is the last thing. Get around people who are experiencing some sort of suffering or marginalization. What I call priestly proximity. That's what shaped me. I am recording this from the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. According to Median Income, this is the fourth poorest county in the nation. I'm surrounded by material poverty, which is very, very closely linked to racism because it's the Delta. This is cotton country. It's linked to uh, sharecropping and then race-based chattel slavery before it. And so, being around this community, and and the reason I got here, I was a teacher, I was a sixth grade teacher. So, every day, all the issues associated with material poverty would walk into my classroom on two feet. They were beautiful, vibrant, astounding kids made in God's image, but with so much stacked against them because there's so little material wealth here. And I saw that up front, up close, and face to face, and it forced me to start asking, what does my faith say about this? and so i say priestly proximity getting around people whether that's volunteering or going to a meeting or you know, befriending folks who who are in a different life situation from you is going to be extremely illuminating in terms of what actions you need to take
1: i really appreciate that and it, you know that tying that last piece into the first piece which i think sometimes we feel like we're doing the work of justice by arguing with people about it rather than taking those kinds of steps, even just that proximity, like you're saying, of building those relationships with people who are not in our demographic.
2: Let me give one action step. Yeah. Start essentially a pen pal relationship with someone who's incarcerated. Like if you want to have to take a really practical step, I'll have to contact you after there's an organization that, that, that facilitates these things, but you can also, my, my, one of my favorite answers to these questions is two words, Google it. You can Google it. <laughs> uh, write, write letters to incarcerated people. I taught in Parchman Penitentiary, which is also known as Parchment Farm. It was started as a convict lease farm in Mississippi. Uh, recent data says it has the highest incarceration, not, incarceration rate, not just in the country, but in the world, per capita. So I taught in, in the prisons and also Marshall County Correctional Facility. And it changed me, man. It changed my view of incarceration because I got close to, in this case, the men who were behind bars. And if you want to know where to start and what action to take, start communicating with folks on the inside. Hopefully that leads to other even more meaningful communication. It, and it may lead you to criminal justice, criminal legal system reform or or some other issue. But when you get in that proximity, even if it's just through a letter with folks who are who are facing dire situations, anybody who's got a heart can't, help but have their perspective shifted and hopefully their actions too
0: well thank you for that jamar and and thank you for spending some time with us here today to talk about this very important issue uh one one final thing um the t-shirt i i I take an extra large
2: (laughs) very good i'm getting the next order in now so thanks so much jamar for joining us i appreciate it thanks for the conversation
3: You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Thanks to our listeners who support us each week by rating the podcast, leaving a review, and telling others about our show. We couldn't have made this amazing episode without the help of our producers group. Jonathan Chambers, Donna Goetz, Camille Arneberg, Corey Kinsman, Tina Seidener, Paul Beecham, Mary Sanders... Diana Dwaran, Sandy Broad, and William D. Heiser. As always, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team, Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Tessa Stoltz, Nick Striegel, Haley Warren, Jessica Chow, and Natalie Wyand.